Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Uncomfortable. Colin Hansen, he's the editorial director of the Gospel Coalition. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. So for anyone unfamiliar with the Gospel Coalition, tell me a little bit about it. How do you describe it? We are a renewal network of churches in the evangelical Protestant tradition, specifically Reformed congregations, which basically means we bring together Southern Baptists, we bring together Presbyterians, we bring together evangelical free churches, independent churches, Anglican churches, a lot of them in that kind of classic reformational tradition, evangelical tradition uh, for collaboration, for cooperation, for evangelism, getting the good news of Jesus out uh, in the United States and North America and around the world. And so we do that through conferences and through a website and through publications and podcasts and videos and things like that. So I've been there about eight years now and we're about 12, 13 years old. So it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun, but that's that's the Gospel Coalition. And you are based in Birmingham, Alabama. We're, in, we're actually all over the place. You're all over the so, place. You are based there. Yeah, now. I'm based there as right. the editorial director, so mm-hmm. responsible for our website and for um, you know publications and things like that. But our vice president president is here in New York City, Tim mm-hmm. Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Our president, Don Carson's a theology or New Testament professor in Chicago, north of Chicago. And um, my boss, our executive director is in Austin, Texas, along with many of other many of our other leaders. So it's a, it's a virtual age. So we're all over. You're the all place over. You don't need to be in one work. place anymore, do you? That's right. So um, we always like to start off hearing about our guests, whatever you'd like to share. I want to know how you came to do this work, how you came sure. to hold the beliefs you do today. So tell me about you. So I grew up uh, on a farm in South Dakota um, and uh, really loved it, enjoyed that small town, very small town. I, I often tell people I grew up on a farm outside of a town of 250, 15 minutes from a town of about 5,000 people. What so was that, the closest town? What was the small town called? Well, the small town is called Chester. Okay. Uh, I went to high school in Chester, as did my mother, and as did my grandparents as well. Really? Uh, wow. So uh, next door was um, my my cousins, my aunt and uncle. My great-grandmother was down down the road just next door. Well, I mean, next door in South Dakota is like half a mile away, <laughs> I mean, on the farm. <laughs> Uh, and my grandparents there, so it was a really wonderful way to grow uh, to grow up. My my family uh, through my grandfather's side has um, deep roots in the Welsh Methodist tradition. Mm-hmm. So we were Methodists, United Methodists, growing up, um, and that was actually part of this kind of. Calvinistic Methodist movement of these massive revivals in Wales that were related to John Wesley's work as well, George Whitfield, John Wesley, all this stuff that really transformed English and American religious life. Uh, actually, a lot of things that I'm involved with still today. But I didn't come to faith until high school. Um, had a pretty dramatic conversion experience there when I just came to understand God's God's grace for me, His forgiveness of me as a sinner, and uh, and uh, that that was a, a free gift to receive, not something that we can earn. And uh, it just it changed my life. It it sent me on a trajectory. I was kind of on two different paths. Came to came to faith, and I, I was I was interested in sports journalism. That's one reason why I went to. Uh, to journalism school in, in Chicago, but then decided I was really more called to, to ministry. And so uh, we've been working in kind of religious journalism ever since then. Well, tell me about that conversion you, you mentioned, um, because it is so specific and personal for everyone. So essentially, in the my parents took me to, to church, I think in large part out of responsibility. This is what you do as upstanding members of, of, of our community. And uh, and also, it's a good way to instill morals and, and things like that. Yeah. But I was a pretty, I was the, ob- I was obnoxious in certain ways when you think about like confirmation groups or stuff like that. So I was the kid who wanted to stay afterward to ask the questions, what about the dinosaurs? Okay, <laughs> explain the dinosaurs. How did me. that go over? It went over well because I had a great teacher and he was willing to patiently work through uh, all those questions with me. But I would sit there in Christmas services and I'd say, my generation isn't stupid like this. We're not going to buy any of this stuff. Why, what, what's the point? We're wasting our time. Think of all the other things that we could be doing right now. My generation won't won't follow through on any of this. And in fact, I would say probably most of the the kind of kids that I grew up with don't observe any kind of religion anymore. Really, most um, of them, you think? 
Yeah, as far as I can, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was kind of an all or nothing deal. Uh, the 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 kind of prayer I uttered in fifteen year old angst <laughs> was more or less like God, if if you're real and this is a serious thing, then show yourself to me. Help me to understand why this what this Bible means, um, why it's important, what what it's all about, and if not, just help me to understand. I don't want to waste my life doing something that's you know, following a God who isn't there or worshiping a Christ who didn't rise from the dead or a Holy Spirit who doesn't dwell inside of us or a, or a Bible that's not inspired. It's just an ancient text. Uh, I want to know if this is real and if this is true. And, and by God's grace, um, that, was, that was, I mean, it helped me open my eyes, I would say, to see the truth of those things. But more than anything else, I mean, I, I probably would have intellectually assented to a number of these things as probably true because that's how I was raised mm -hmm. but I didn't feel any kind of urgency about any of it or, or a sense that my life should revolve around that and that's really the experience and and it was that I had when I was 15 years old and that God has carried me through since then it was interesting my parents could see something change dramatically I remember they sat me down and it was just confusing they were like what well, we go to church too but we don't understand. Something's happened to you. They could see it in you. They could see it in well, you. Well, you acted differently. Well, or? I mean, I would still say, you know, I mean, I found plenty of ways to, you know, just to, just to be difficult and just full of a lot of pride and, you know, desire to argue about things and stuff like that. So sort it wasn't Average that, behavior for a 15-year-old, right? I suppose. Yeah. I suppose so. But more than anything else, just a, a change in my, my desires, my affections, my kind of emotional countenance, just my, my interests. And more than anything else, just a kind of spiritual seriousness that this is this is true. Jesus is real. He did rise from the dead. Um, he has ascended, interceding at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I mean that this is this is real stuff, and therefore, it's something that I want to devote my life to. Um, so you so. mentioned the word evangelical, which mm -hmm. we use a lot. Sure. And, and I think some people use it without fully understanding what it means. Yeah. So all we're talking about there is a is a word that derives from the root. Greek word for good news, the evangel. So it's a bearer of good news. An evangelical is somebody who believes that uh, you must be born again. So if you think about John 3, um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus tells him he must be born again. And he's very confused by this as a, as a Pharisee who understands the Bible, but he's very confused. So how can you be born again? And Jesus says, you, you must be born by the spirit. You've been born by the flesh, but you must be born again by the spirit. And so that doctrine of what evangelicals call regeneration was really the hallmark of those great awakenings that I was talking about in early American history, and that's in a transatlantic history, really. But that's what it means then to be evangelical, a bearer of good news that you must be born again, but that Christ has died for sinners, and we put our faith and trust in him to, to be forgiven of our sins and, and to have eternal life. So that's what it means, and that's what unites people Across denominations, um, evangelical does not mean you go to a certain kind of church with a certain kind of church government or certain kinds of other beliefs. It's really a unifying doctrine across different Protestant denominations. One of the times in which we often use the term happens around elections, right? It's mm -hmm. turned out to be a very powerful voting block mm -hmm. uh, to the degree that there are still blocks in the way that we practice in our elections. And so when you talk about evangelicals in America in terms of how they vote, in terms of their interest. Who are they? Like, what's what's on the agenda list there? What are their priorities? So, it's interesting. A lot of that has changed over the years. So, evangelicals were not really a voting block until really the, the 1970s and into the 19, 1980s, especially, mm -hmm. as we understand them today. So, you would have found evangel... I mean, leading up to the Civil War, uh, the vast majority of Americans were evangelicals. Uh, so, really, they're would be any any priorities that Americans would have, evangelicals would have. Um, but two different things combined in the 1960s and the 1970s to set the current evangelical political agenda as we know it today. And specifically, I'm talking about white evangelicals here because right. there are many African-American evangelicals who have just been in, on different tracks and just are not the same politically. So just for ease of, of description here. Yeah. Uh, and we should mention, too, when we talk about polls and we talk about breaking yeah. them out in political conversation, it is usually white evangelicals. Yeah, a lot of reasons for that. But yeah. namely, the first one was the tumult following civil rights, the civil rights era of the 1960s. And so uh, many evangelicals were located in the South. Um, 
the Bible Belt, uh, Second Great Awakening, early 1800s, mm-hmm. Baptists, Methodists, things like that, that legacy. Um, conservative people, but who had voted Democratic, had voted for, um, had voted for Lyndon Johnson, or not for Lyndon Johnson, but previously for FDR, mm-hmm. voted for Democrats for forever, essentially. But civil rights flipped that equation. Those Southern white evangelicals um, who were unfortunately very much beholden to certain American uh, sins of racism and, and all of that, um, abandoned the Democratic Party over that. And so you had a shifting in, in alliances. And then through the 1960s and 70s, then you had a lot of the sexual issues come into play, and specifically abortion in 1973. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what most people know evangelicals for today, is caring about abortion, um, caring about homosexuality, um, though that's receded a little bit in the political agenda. Well, you say that's how of, most people know them, but is that what actually matters to members of the community as priorities? I would certainly say abortion is a is a significant factor. That's a, it's a major factor for, yeah. for evangelicals, but not uniquely to evangelicals. I need to point out here that evangelicals were not at the forefront of the early pro-life movement. Mm-hmm. Roman Catholics were at the forefront of that movement. But evangelicals were a little bit slow to realize and work out the doctrine of the image of God, but to basically realize this is life. This is vulnerable life. It is life that must be protected, and there's nothing more important than our right to to life. So that's how it became kind of at the pinnacle of, of the evangelical agenda. I would say, though, that sometimes that's not actually the most significant priority that evangelicals put into practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sometimes it's a convenient excuse in some ways um, that becomes a kind of detailed answer. But I would say, generally speaking, when you're talking to people, that's at the top of the agenda. They'll locate their political beliefs with those issues from the 1970s and especially abortion. We're going to dig into that statement a yeah. little bit over the course of the I feel like you We've have more to time. say about that. I do. Um, it is important to point out that when we talk about them in terms of politics, in terms of voting, 76% of people who self-identify as evangelical also identify as Republican or leaning Republican. That follows the trend you mentioned. But also that white evangelicals make up a fifth of all registered voters. So we're talking about a significant, powerful community in America in terms of exercising that vote. Now, I want to ask you about something you wrote in this last election cycle. Mm-hmm. The month before the presidential election mm-hmm. of November 2016, you wrote that the American evangelical movement and religious right won't be the same after the 2016 presidential election. What did you mean by that? I meant that it's an an unmasking, uh, more or less a a revelation of what's truly happening. There have been a lot of talk among evangelicals about the significance of character in politics or how we need to be able to bring uh, the gospel or biblical principles to bear on government. That clearly was not the top priority of white evangelicals, or at least most of them, when it came to the last presidential election. Um, They were willing to overlook many things that they had not overlooked in other candidates, and namely in other candidates from the other party. Um, And so, more or less, I realized this this is going to split people. It's going to split people along the lines of those people who more or less think these are certain true beliefs that we have to hold to, that we cannot compromise under any circumstances, are those people who believe that we need to make a lot of compromises in politics to get a little bit of what we want. And sometimes that even means supporting people that don't actually embody any of the values that we have been telling people for decades are so important to us. So and let's so, get specific about this now. You're yeah. talking about the overwhelming white evangelical support for Mr. Trump. In 2016, yeah. They went for Mr. Trump 80% to 16, which was stronger even than they went. That's the strongest they've gone for any Republican candidate uh, since 2004. That was Mm -hmm. George W. Bush. They went for him for 78%. Why? Why? What do you think led to that level of support, that strong level of support? So I think there's two ways to answer that question. It's a great question. I've spent a lot of time trying to think about that myself. Uh, it's been a difficult difficult year, I would say. Um, a, cu- a couple years, I guess I should say. One of them is that I think most broadly when it comes to the general election, most evangelicals, white evangelicals just realized Hillary Clinton never supported them, 
never never agreed with them had been openly antagonistic to them had never done any outreach to them whatsoever and had embodied almost everything that they hated about american life and culture and politics for literally the last 50 years what does that mean can you get more specific with that though when you Just say when that it, she didn't didn't agree with them was that on specific issues certainly that would that would relate to sexual issues just like we're talking about there whether it be same-sex marriage or abortion or things like that I think um, almost existentially, it would relate to things like religious freedom and a willingness to follow through on President Obama's agenda of really tightening down the federal enforcement of of certain, I guess, probably um, gay rights, things that conflict with religious freedom. Uh, so that's Those would I mean, be like rules enforcing people having to provide services for same-sex couples. And not or even that, that, kind that of thing. so much. Really, it's related to Christian schools and Christian nonprofits and things okay. like that. So being able to hire people who basically exemptions from Title IX. Uh, so being able to, I mean, if 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 the federal government describes um, discrimination in terms of sexual gender, uh, gender, sexual orientation and gender identity, right? And federal funds are withheld because of that. All of a sudden, Christian schools have major problems. Can do they have to conform to that? Do they lose their funding? Do they get exemptions to that? The conversations that people were having in 2016 were, were again truly existential. Like, will Christian institutions like this, evangelical colleges, nonprofits? many of whom are, are quite wealthy, will they survive right. if President Clinton were to get into office and to ultimately um, you know, tighten, or to continue what President Obama had already been doing? And when you say, just to be specific, when yeah. you say this presented a major problem for them, the problem being that they then couldn't decide, we don't want to hire, say, someone who is LGBTQ, because yeah, that does so, not conform with our beliefs. So system. similar to what you're seeing on college campuses, where just recently you have a case at the University of Iowa where the Christian Legal Society is not allowed to only only kind of have Christians elected right. to lead their organization. You've seen that on a number of different campuses, and for some reason that applies to Christian groups, but it doesn't apply to other religious groups. It doesn't apply to other activist groups. So it seems like, and that's what the courts ruled in Iowa recently, that there was a special kind of, um, uh, I guess, hostility toward the Christian groups in that case. So specifically, freedom to be able to hire freedom to be able to teach, freedom to be able to continue to collect federal funding for things like student loans and subsidized student loans and things like that mm -hmm. without being able to, um, you know, again, just getting exemptions from those things without having to conform. Specifically, that was actually the case in California in 2016, where the Christian schools were, and again, it's, it's across the denominational spectrum, Roman Catholic and Protestant and, and otherwise, yeah. being told more or less, we're not going to allow state funding for any schools that don't conform to the state's anti-discrimination standards. Well, that, that poses a massive budget threat and ultimately a religious liberty threat to those schools. So just in terms of the general election, yeah, that was a major concern. Now, I had other bigger concerns. Which um, were? The integrity of Christian witness, our ability to be able to speak honestly about the gospel and about grace without people seeing that we're just craven political animals and actors, you know, uh, just a lot of questions. How can we possibly rationalize support for President Trump, who shows such hostility toward ethnic minorities in particular, deepening our racial divisions that are already so grievous in this country? Um, I didn't think President Trump would follow through on the promises that he did make to Christians. Now, actually, he has followed through on some of them, but I just didn't trust given his track record at the time. So I just want to say, when it comes to the, the difficult questions that people made in 2016, I want to separate between the decisions that people made in the general election, mm -hmm. which were a, a binary choice of two candidates, and they knew one candidate was very hostile toward them. Even President Obama had done evangelical outreach in his reelection. Hillary Clinton did not. She didn't do anything like that. Do you feel like the anti-Clinton vote is what informed the majority of that level, that that very, very strong level of support? Yeah, of the people who voted, one thing we don't really know is exactly who all turned out, how many of those evangelicals stayed at home. But among people who did vote, white evangelicals, it's pretty clear they were certainly driven by kind of the, the, the enemy they knew, 
yeah. who was Clinton versus the enemy that they didn't really know as well. So let me ask President you this, because I think this is where a lot of the confusion resides for people outside the community. It is, as you mentioned, the things that people were willing to overlook. Mm-hmm. And so I want to ask you about what led you to that op-ed that yeah. you wrote right before the election. Mm-hmm. In the months leading up to the election during the campaign, there was that bus tape that was mm-hmm. released. And everyone felt at the moment, this is a turning point, right. you know? And when it was released, there was a sort of feeble outcry, if you can even call it an outcry. There was a member of Mr. Trump's Evangelical Advisory Council, a pastor, James McDonald, who came out and said that the comments, and I'll quote him here, are misogynistic trash that reveal a man to be lecherous and worthless. He went on to say no more defending Mr. Trump as simply foolish or loose-lipped. But he was sort of a lone voice. There wasn't a chorus of outcry. Did that surprise you at that moment? I do think there was a little bit of of more opposition than that. That was actually part of what prompted my uh, op-ed, and that was prompted my response. And I did see a lot of it. It just kind of depends on where you're looking. Um, the folks there who are certainly hanging, wasn't consensus among. No, the no, 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 no. By no means. By no means. And I would say those people who have who continue to support President Trump now, those people did not speak out on that. I mean, it was pretty clear if you spoke out against President Trump, you might face the wrath of his Twitter account, you know, and the wrath of his Twitter followers. Is that what you think kept people from speaking out? Well, namely, I think a lot of evangelical leaders realize, and this is part of what I was going to get at before, it wasn't just the general election support. Trump was the preferred candidate of many white evangelicals during the primary as well. Mm-hmm. People say that they overlooked things about President Trump. I don't think that's actually true. I think many white evangelicals preferred him precisely for who he is. And that makes all of this more complicated. I think you've seen a lot of evangelical leaders, very similar to a lot of the Republican Party leaders, who privately will tell you all kinds of things that they're disturbed by, but they feel beholden to a base that does not share their qualms and does not share the concerns and sees everything in terms of a vast left-wing conspiracy to try to destroy people of faith or conservative values or whatever else you want to say. And so you can, you can talk to elected officials. You can talk to these evangelical leaders. Some of them are just totally on board with him. Mm-hmm. Some of them know that there are serious consequences to speaking out against him from their own supporters. And then some of them are willing to take the heat because they just can't stand what's happening. <laughs> so what about the conversations you have? Because obviously you're, you have a big voice, a big platform in the community. You've talked to leadership along the way. Privately, you say that they share some concerns. What do they say privately that they're not willing to say publicly? Most of the people I talk to actually are willing to speak out publicly <laughs> against him, mainly because ultimately the, the clarity of the gospel is at stake. In, in this situation, when you have evangelicals so willing to throw a lot of their values and throw a lot of their theology overboard in support for President Trump, it's pretty obvious the rest of the country says, what? I, I, I thought you thought the opposite. You, you used to think morality is important. Now morality is not important. You used to think repentance is important and the forgiveness of sins is you know, kind of the essence of the gospel. But now you have a, a kind of mulligan theology where it, it doesn't seem to matter what we do. And President Trump says that he's never had anything to ask forgiveness for. I mean, it just, it's just very confusing. Mm-hmm. So I do actually think a lot of people have spoken out because they've seen that are, uh, that that Christians are sending a mixed and very confusing message to the world about the nature of grace, which is that we, we're all in need of a Savior. It's not just these good people versus these horrible people. It's all of us who stand condemned by our sin, but are you know, able recipients by the power of God to receive the gospel. I think a lot of people are speaking out, but it does tend to be younger people. It does tend to be people in more urban locations where more more of their neighbors are liberal. Um, So there do seem to be some of those divisions. But yeah, when you get into places that are deeper red and and more conservative overall, it's actually you just see a lot of support for Trump. I think the other difficulty in this, though, is when you're talking about leadership in the community, you're talking Mm -hmm. about people who are in positions of influence, who control 
the message and who sure. speak on behalf of huge swaths, not just there was the bus tape, there have been other offensive remarks and things along the way, as you mentioned, that seem to go contrary right. to a lot of the, the, the basic ideals of what it means to be evangelical. There is also the continued support, right? Even as there are more troubling stories and allegations that come out, you've got people like Jerry Falwell Jr. saying, well, all these things, you know, when it had to do with an alleged affair that uh, President mm-hmm. Trump may have had soon after the birth of his youngest child. Uh, he said all these things were years ago. People should forgive and move on. Franklin Graham said that Christians are not looking to Mr. Trump to be the, quote, pastor of this nation. The Mulligan comment yeah. you you referenced, yeah. that was Tony Perkins Tony basically Perkins. saying, we'll give him a do-over. He gets to, he gets a fresh start. These are things, and and correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like faith leaders, you mentioned that they're representing a base to some degree, but aren't they also meant to be providing moral leadership? I won't be arguing in defense of those guys. <laughs> so, I'm asking you to understand where that defense comes from, though. Are there why, specific- Where their defense yeah. comes from? Well, I mean, I mentioned earlier those concerns about Title IX. I mentioned those concerns about federal funding and, and uh, in higher education. One of those people you mentioned right there runs the largest Christian university in the world. I mean, I, I don't know exactly his political calculus there, but he would stand to lose a lot uh, in a Clinton administration, and I would happen to agree with him just on the on the on the pure principle of those points. You 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 have that in play. Um, I I don't know if they I could not tell you if they sincerely believe the things they say. I, it's it's strange that they would. I'll put it that way. It's strange that people would even agree with them. I just think it's one of the tragedies of our of our moment, people willing to throw their principles and to throw their beliefs and to throw their convictions and ultimately just the, the power of the gospel aside in the name of what seems like a kind of temporal political calculation that, I mean, we all know how politics works. I mean, one day everybody thinks that you're on top of the world and you can't be stopped, and the next day you're in the trash heap. This is exactly what the Bible teaches, that the Lord raises up leaders and he tears down leaders. So I don't really understand the calculation. I can't really defend. Um, but again, I do think, if I'm understanding correctly the, the kind of situation we see, a lot of evangelicals are really angry, just really angry about how the, cult, how the culture is changing in multiple different directions. That includes the, the sexual issues that we've been talking about. But it also includes immigration. It includes refugees. Um, again, I'm not defending this, and I'm not even really here to offer a kind of like explanation for it. It's just I've had to do a lot of soul searching in this for exactly the reasons that you're talking about to say, what's at work here? And I think one of the things that I really missed was how deeply ingrained a lot of racism is in much of the evangelical movement. Um, What do you mean by that? Well, as part of what I was, evangelicals are not some sort of sideshow in American life. They are intrinsic to American life. Uh, The evangelical creed of freedom and of, of conscience and of individual choice and individual autonomy are the very kind of building blocks of the United States. Um, there isn't a lot of room for understanding how systems of injustice conspire um, to be able to disempower or to or to mete out uh, injustice to certain groups of people, and especially ethnic minorities. And so it took this last election for me to stop and realize just how deeply intertwined the resistance is to seeing racism in this country among evangelicals, precisely because we're trained theologically not to see it, because we're trained to think in only individualistic terms. But that's the evangelical movement. I don't think that's actually scripture. I think the scripture guides us in being able to 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 hold up God's justice and to follow through with his mercy and to walk humbly before him and before our neighbors. That's the soul searching that I've had to do, but it's come at a great cost and it's come at a lot of pain. Uh, for me just to realize that these beliefs that I hold dear, I still hold them dear insofar as they're grounded in Scripture, but as I see them play out in the evangelical movement, I see pretty massive problems. There is this fascinating point, I know you've written about this a lot too, um, and I've read a lot of the things you've written about this, about racism and about the way that it's viewed and and, and its place right now in the evangelical movement. And 
it, it reminds me that, you know, the religion in all forms has been used to justify a lot of really terrible things mm-hmm. over our world history and certainly just in American history, right? Like right. there was a very Christian basis mm-hmm. for slavery that was just part of the fabric of American mm-hmm. society for years and right. years. And Frederick Douglass wrote, right, mm-hmm. that the, the Christianity of the slaveholder right. that I've seen versus the mm-hmm. Christianity of Christ, right. two very different things. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that, uh, just because you raised it, do you still mm-hmm. see that as, as important enough a concern that it should be talked about more than it is today? And I do think it is being talked about a lot. Um, and I'm Within the community, I'm asking. Within the evangelical, I I mean, one of the things that I'm working on right now is an event that the Gospel Coalition and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention are hosting on the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Mm -hmm. It'll be in Memphis on on April 3rd and 4th this year. So, actually, I mean, we we are trying to instigate those, those conversations, and a lot of them are being, again, I think a lot of people are doing that kind of soul searching. But has it reached a critical mass? No. A lot of the feedback I still get is the same that would have been from 60 years ago. Maybe there's some different targets and maybe some different, you know, some tweaks on it. But it's amazing to me. I'll just give you one example of this. Um, So one of the things we've done at the Gospel Coalition is talk about President Trump's um, really tightened tightened entry points for refugees. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, that's a major concern for Christians because a lot of the, you know, maybe 10% or so of the refugees who have been admitted have been Christians coming from persecuted countries. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about our brothers and sisters, especially in the Middle East and what they suffer as minorities over there. But this policy is affecting them. Well, beyond that, of course, most of the rest of them are Muslims. We've been arguing Christians, evangelicals and spe- specifically, have been sending missionaries to these parts of the world to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they must be born again, that they're sinners in need of grace, and that only, and apart from Jesus Christ, they'll be judged. We've been spending billions of dollars for centuries to reach these people, but it's very difficult to reach Muslim countries for many different reasons. Now they're being brought to the United States which seems like a movement of God for us to be able to love them as our neighbors and be able to preach this gospel to them. Yet many evangelicals say, no, we don't want them. Keep them out because they're Muslims and they want to kill us. Even though this is not what refugees do. Refugees are people who are fleeing violence. They're not the ones who are bringing violence. There's no evidence for this. This is what I mean of there are real people who are pushing these conversations, places like World Relief, and who are really pushing this, but there is substantial resistance at the popular level. And that's why we've had to do this soul searching at the popular level to say, boy, maybe some of these racial dynamics are deeper seated than we ever realized. But the resistance isn't just at the popular level, right? It, it's yeah. from the leadership itself. Some leaders, yeah. Right? So, And that's the impossibility of, of speaking about the evangelical movement. There's no clearinghouse, you know, there's no pope. And so power is more or less derived by who can get in front of the camera, who can get at that kind of speaking position. But you'll have people talk all the time. Our events bring about 10,000 people to mm-hmm. them. Conservative political meetings from the religious right get about 1,000 people to come to them. Mm -hmm. But media don't go to our events, but media go to their events. Media tend to, as a general, and I'm a member of the media, tend to see religion in terms of politics. Religion is a subset of politics, but that's not how most religious people, evangelicals specifically, see these things. They see politics as an outflow of their religion, but not as the the main thing. Mm -hmm. So, but it is those political people who take political stands, and especially the more r- radical political stands, who are the ones who get featured. And so in my community and in my ministry, it's incredibly frustrating to see these same leaders trotted out again and again and again to speak these hateful words when they don't speak for me and they don't speak for the 20 million people on, When who you're talking about site. people like Perkins, or mm-hmm. uh, these are not radical people. These are people who've been around institutionally in terms of American 
politics as mm-hmm. well, advising presidents and, and largely for the Republican Party as well, but mm-hmm. there's candidates along the way. So I, I'm not sure that I buy that it's something that's being imposed on the community. It feels like something that has come up yeah. from the community quite organically. No, that's a good point. I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I do would, I would say though, with the longer view in mind, the 1980s. Mm-hmm. This is not the way evangelicals operated before that. Not, not to, not to the same extent. If you had evangelicals supporting William Jennings Bryan, even up until, um, you know, a populist Democratic candidate ran four times for president, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, go forward, evangelicals were fairly split between Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford between North and South right. there. It really was not until 1980 that you saw this, this kind of merging, and that was a deliberate effort made by Jerry Falwell, um, you know, in the moral majority, and it is held to a certain extent. I'm not convinced of how long that's going to hold. Um, who knows what would have happened if, if Clinton had been elected? I'm not really sure. And it might be that it'll all, we, we might see this as kind of the zenith of the movement. And if the Republicans get wiped out in the next, you know, midterm election and President Trump doesn't get reelected, you might see it evaporate, you know, for good. I'm not really sure. But the point is, I don't disagree with you that this is a real phenomenon, but there are certain factors that make it a historical aberration, namely that legacy of the moral majority, the Republican Party becoming the pro-life party that used to be split mm-hmm. between the two different parties. And then on top of that, I would have to say the effect of conservative media, talk radio and uh, Fox News. So what particular. are you, can you talk about the fact that people are raising these issues, that there isn't consensus within the community mm-hmm. as you understand it right now, even if at the senior levels there seem to be sort of uh, one solid pathway forward. What are you concerned about happening now for evangelicals in America based on this split that you're seeing right now? Just my concern is mainly for how the world understands Jesus and his good news. I just think there's rampant confusion. And that the basic confusion is that we're casting ourselves as somehow this morally righteous people who, who somehow don't sin and judge everybody else. And that's just not the news of the gospel. The news of the gospel is that we're sinners in need of grace, in need of salvation. We extend that salvation in love to our neighbors. Uh, but I don't think that's how our neighbors, generally speaking, understand us today at that meta level of how they see us politically and how they see us um, just in terms of, of, of the media. And that is certainly perpetuated by some of our own spokesmen. Yeah, I mean, I would say the larger issue seems to be that there's a perception this is a community that's willing to set aside re- core religious beliefs when it is politically convenient. I mean, and I, I wouldn't disagree. I mean, if I were talking to my neighbor about that and um, and, and that was something that she brought up, I, I wouldn't disagree. I'd say that's what it looks like to me, too. And it's incredibly distressing. And that's why I have to go back and say, you know, there's always been a problem. We, we always strive imperfectly toward obedience to Christ. And that's why as, we, as, we, as we're on Twitter and we're watching conservative media and all that sort of stuff, you've got to get back to the words of Jesus himself. And the beautiful thing is that he makes everybody uncomfortable. You know, like Jesus is an equal opportunity offender for everybody, but, but you want to be around him because he's so perfectly loving and perfectly holy, but not a holiness that, that pushes everybody away, but a holiness that draws people to himself. You know, he was near to the, to the poor and to the downtrodden, and, and he offended and, and went right after the authorities who ultimately put him to death. That's my big hope and my big desire is to get people back into the words of Jesus himself to see that has the power to transform. You know, we, we started off talking about my conversion at, at age 15. It wasn't because I saw Jerry Falwell, though sometimes I would sit up late at night and watch Bill Maher and, and Jerry Falwell go at it and just <laughs> my little 18-year-old head or whatever. It was so depressing. But, uh, but that, you know, none of this stuff has the power to save anyone and the power to change individuals or to change societies. And so my big fear is that people will miss out on that message, that there's a glorious, transformative, amazingly glorious message that we're just overlooking in a lust for 24-7 politics and being able to blame all our problems on other people. I, I Ultimately, I see a culture full of fear and loathing on all sides, on all sides. And I just, I mean, what would it look like for us to be full of faith and to be full of hope. Well, let me ask you this, though, because there's 
there's clearly something happening over the last 20, 30 years, yeah. as you mentioned. And you're from Alabama, right? Mm-hmm. I, I went down. That's where I live, yeah, last five years. Yeah. Right. So um, I was down there for the special election. Mm-hmm. There was, as we mentioned, very strong white evangelical support for Mr. Trump in the 2016 general election. There was also overwhelming support for Roy Moore mm-hmm. in the special election for the Senate seat there. And and this was a man who had some incredibly troubling allegations that he was facing, and also just sort of a disregard for basic constitutional facts along the way of his career, right? There was really strong support there, though. What do you say to people who are willing to set aside all those things to say, well, he is pro-life, and so I'm going to disregard all those other things that go counter to my core Christian beliefs because of this one thing. What do you say when you get in a room with them? That's a great question. We don't need the culture and the politicians to look a certain way to protect the church. That was never Jesus's concern. Jesus said, on this rock I build my church to his apostle Peter and said, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. We don't need the culture or a certain politician to protect the church. But in fact, what we need to be worried about is the corruption of the world and of politics that destroys the church. That's what we need to be afraid of right now. And that's our more urgent concern. You know, we started off and I was talking about a lot of my genuine concerns about legal issues and constitutional questions and all that sort of stuff. I'm concerned about all that. But you know what's so interesting throughout the Bible, and the New Testament in particular, and we look at the Apostle Paul especially, he's not concerned about threats from the outside. He's like, from the world, and actually Jesus himself said this, in the world you'll have much trouble, you know, but 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 in me you'll have abundant life. It's just like, the world's going to be a problem. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have to stand apart from the world. That's an issue. But what you need to be really vigilant about is the corruption of our doctrine and our life inside the church. But I see a reversal of that right now in so much. We're ignoring the corruption inside the church, the moral corruption, the theological corruption inside the church, because we're trying to protect the church against what we see are these outside threats, whether it be the gay rights lobby or abortion rights or Muslim refugees or illegal immigrants or whatever else you want to talk about right there. There's all this talk about the outside threats, but meanwhile, the compromises being made on the inside have the possibility of truly destroying the, the credibility of American Christian witness and actually totally cutting off our, our, our churches from younger generations. Well, this is the other thing you've raised in some yeah. of your writing I wanted to ask you about, yeah, this generational divide, right? right? There's obviously, there's race issues to contend with in any religious community, as you mentioned, you've written about those just right. in evangelical America as well. There's a generational divide there to talk about too. Is there a difference between the way young evangelicals in America see politics, the way they engage, the issues that are important to them versus the older generation? Uh, certainly there is. I see that in our online writing. I see that in my own congregation. I see that in my own life. Um, There are massive differences. Uh, The main difference is that you had an older generation, and I'm borrowing here from the writing of of a friend of mine, Trevin Wax, who talks about essentially they saw America, older generations saw America as Jerusalem. They saw it as a city on a hill. They saw it as kind of, you know, we're the most blessed people who ever could have lived in anywhere to live in America during the mid-20th century, more or less. And a lot of the theology flowed from that. Um, But the younger generation doesn't see America as Jerusalem. They're more in tune with some of America's sins, both past and present. Hopefully, they're more in tune with the kind of the some of the corrosive effects of consumerism, of obsession with politics, they're actually more likely to see America as Babylon, you know, as a threat to them Hmm. that they need to resist. Um, You see this play out again, as Trevin Wax writes in the Southern Baptist Convention in particular, Mm -hmm. two generations, one that see America as Babylon, Rome, just another empire that's come. There are good things, there are bad things, but we have to be really careful. Our kingdom, the kingdom of Christ is not of this world, okay? But then there's another generation that says, no, America is, you know, anybody who attacks America is attacking God. And they see and that, that is part of, of your faith practice to protect exactly. that identity, too. That's the major. And you can, you can tease out so many different theological and practical and ecclesial issues from that. Yeah. But that's a fundamental shift. I'm not saying everybody sees it exactly that same way, 
But that's the easiest way I know to be able to describe the generational divide. So people today who self, because this is also about self-identity, right? Sure. It's to be able to say, yes, this is who I am. This is what I believe. For people today who self-identify as evangelical, do you think that it carries more of a political connotation or more of a faith practice connotation? Yeah, yeah, you're right to talk about the self-identification there. Um a lot of people, part of what I'm talking about here, just in terms of confusions and how this is a recent phenomenon, is because the political merging of Northern and Southern evangelicals in the 1980s was a totally new thing. Mm-hmm. And that's why they shifted into one political party. You never could have described evangelicals before as being beholden to a certain political agenda. Right. But now you can. And now there's confusion. And also, it's just, it, it's interesting. In the South, there's a certain strain of conservative Christianity that is held in a in a kind of intellectual ascent, but is not practiced in any way. I mean, some people, they might not even go to church at all, but they might still self-identify as evangelical, perhaps because they're a member of a Southern Baptist church or an right. Assemblies of God congregation or something it's like that. It's more of a community identifier. Exactly. The, similar to the way if you come from where I grew up, you, you're, you're Lutheran if you're, if you're Scandinavian or something like that. You know, you're Irish and Catholic. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're Scots-Irish or just plain old white in the South, you're an evangelical. That's part of the confusion because that just has not that's not that's not the typical way we've understood that mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. So now we're just starting to see that because we saw the Republican Party since the 1980s make a lot of efforts to nominate candidates who would be kind of acceptable to to the religious right in mm-hmm. terms of their character um but it you know but actually it we didn't really understand what was happening until President Trump gets into office and realized, well, if you had to concoct a candidate who would be the absolute antithesis of everything you thought evangelicals stood for, right. it would be President Trump. And yet they supported him. En masse. En masse. And that's why all of a sudden we're seeing, oh, so I think there's a lot of this kind of ethnic tribal identification. It is a sociological, historical, political phenomenon and a theological but do phenomenon, you, do you especially see in that oh do you see that settling in like do you see if there is to be any change if it is to get back to as you mentioned those core right. belief ideals that mm-hmm. have to guide practice and not right. just speech right who is going to lead that what at the risk of selling self-interested the gospel coalition <laughs> is set up to do this exact <laughs> thing i mean well, i set you up for that well uh, you, you did <laughs> let me explain let me explain what i mean by that we constituted in the aftermath of the 2004 presidential election. That was the values voters election. Right. That was same-sex marriage was still eight years from ever being, I think it was eight years or seven years from ever being voted in right. by anybody. Um, and the th- problem we identified, among others, is an over-identification of evangelical theology with politics. Again, this was 2005. Right. President Bush has just been reelected again. He's on the top of the world. This is why I say, everybody, you know, watch your pride lest you fall. Because look what happened in 2006, and then 2008, and then 2012. Um, major problems. So, I mean, Ma- major problems for you, I will say. A lot of people me. were very happy with well, the way to, well, I, I mean, <laughs> things I went those yeah, years. And I, yeah, exactly for the for the for the religious right, right, for certain, and for anybody who supported President Bush, right. Um, but I'm just saying that message that there has been a problem of overly identifying our politics and our theology has been has been raised by many people for a long time. Again, when are we going to reach critical mass? I don't know. It might be a demographic. But thing. for the people who currently have the biggest voices, for the people who have the president's ear, for the people who are identified as leaders, where is the tipping point for them? What behavior just becomes... Too much to be able to overlook. What action? What speech? Where's that line? I don't think there is one. I've been waiting for one. I don't think there is one. Um, I guess you might say maybe if President Trump comes and explicitly does something that's the opposite of one of their chief values, like maybe he nominates a pro-choice Supreme Court justice, that might do it. Um, I don't know. I mean, that, 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 that could be it. That probably... That would be my answer. That's the best I can think of. If that happens, then we'll see. But even then... Short of that? Oh, man. Short of that? I don't know. I mean, it, it's... 
The reason I didn't vote for President Trump is because I feared his temperament when it came to things like war. And thankfully so far, that's not been a huge problem in terms of actual war. But then again, with some of the rhetoric that you, that you see, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm just continuing to hope that we don't encounter some kind of cataclysmic event mm-hmm. related to nuclear weapons or something like that. I don't think that would really even necessarily change the evangelical support, but it would certainly shake everything up. Um, but no, I mean, short of a pro-choice nominee, um, I mean, that was something, I'll just go back to what I talked about earlier. That yeah. was something that separated evangelicals from President Bush when he uh, when he nominated Harriet Myers, yeah. um, which led to John Roberts, um, which then has been kind of disappointing to evangelicals in certain ways, but still, um, namely on health care. Yeah. But, um, but that was an area that evangelicals immediately turned on the president. So that's a possibility, again. If you had a chance to sit down with some of those leaders, and you have access to them, I'm sure, what, what is your message to them what do you, about the future of this community in America, about some of those core beliefs you've talked about so passionately? What would you say to them? I guess I would, I would just want to ask why. You know, what, what, is, what is their goal? What is their hope? What kind of feedback are they getting that tells them that this is a wise approach? It's not that I think we have to disagree with everything President Trump does he'll do some good things and he'll do some bad things but i wonder where is the where is the evidence of the influence anybody can get influence you know it's it's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy you don't get access to the figure unless you tell him or her what he or she wants to hear Mm -hmm. at least with bad leaders (laughs) you know good leaders are willing to hear out multiple sides but that's just generally how these things work so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy to say that these people are the ones with the access. Well, they have the access because they tell him what he wants to hear. So I would say, when are those moments where you tell him what he doesn't want to hear? One of those moments where you are like the prophet Nathan to King David saying, you are the man here. When do we see a change in temperament, um, a welcoming and appreciation for people not like us, a love for our neighbors, in addition to good uh, justices on the courts and pro-life policies and things like that, which I'm thankful for. But when do we see some of that other evidence? Because this would not be the first generation of religious leaders fooled by political figures. And I'll, I'll just say this. This is what Billy Graham, the most famous evangelical leader of American history, said was the greatest mistake of his life, was getting too close to politicians and how he was blinded specifically to Richard Nick- Nixon's indiscretions. Um, he was, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Billy Graham was the most famous evangelical in the world through the rise of the religious right mm-hmm. and never supported it. He, when they were talking about uh, abortion and things like that, which he is a conservative on, he was talking about nuclear disarmament right. in the Soviet Union, things like that. But it does speak to our current time to see that that was the message of the most famous and popular evangelical of all time. And his son embodies the complete opposite of that. And I wonder, why didn't we learn the lesson? That's a question a lot of people ask on a lot of issues these days, I think. Um, Colin Hansen, I can't thank you enough for your time. I well, appreciate it. thank you. It. This is really fun. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Nawaz. Thanks for listening.